0: would be saying, we got whooped. Uh, today, I'm not gonna do a postmortem on why and how that happened, uh, but to be sure, the vote in Kansas sen- sent shockwaves throughout the whole country. And there's gonna be people much smarter than I am who are gonna delve into why and how that happens, uh, and hopefully get some lessons learned. Uh, But as biblical Christians, we've got another thing to consider that Mike just mentioned, the sovereignty of God, the fact that He is in control. Uh, Christians have always had to wrestle with how free will and His sovereignty work together, and they do. Uh, And so we've got to figure all this out. And and I want to say at this point that I am in no way apologizing For the fact that we hammered you all over the last several months to get out and vote for the value them both amendment and we should always exercise our free will to get as close to god's best in our culture as we can and i'm frankly very grateful for the the work that a lot of people including some legislators and people like eric rucker and many others behind the scenes worked to get value them both on the ballot. It was not easy and it took a long time. However, we've also got to consider what is God saying to us in his sovereignty? So I hope today to lay some foundation for moving forward. Seems to me it's pretty clear that God has something for us to do to refocus the Kansas flock of sheep on maybe something we've neglected. So this message is going to be a little technical, a little graphic, and perhaps a little challenging for some. Uh, To assist me, I'm I'm going to have a short non-graphic video, as well as a guest speaker come up later. So let's try to lay the foundation first. I want to start with a brief history of life. Uh, More specifically, a history of life and death of the pre-born both in general and in Kansas. You know, people have rid themselves of the preborn since ancient times. The first recorded evidence we have of that is a Egyptian papyrus from the 1500s BC. The Greeks and the Romans had several ways to dispose of the preborn, yet they recognized the life that was there by prohibiting a widow, a pregnant widow, from getting rid of the heir to his father's estate that she was carrying. In England and the American colonies, abortion was generally illegal from the point of quickening when there was movement felt within the womb, because that's the only way that doctors had of determining that there was a living thing there. Uh, But in the 19th century, the English-speaking world started to pass laws against abortions at all stages of pregnancy. In the United States, the physicians were the leading advocates to make abortion illegal, some of them because of advances in medical knowledge, showed that quickening was no more, no no less crucial in the process of gestation than any other step. And if one opposes abortion after quickening, one should oppose abortion before as well. Those restrictions accelerated uh, from from the late 1860s to the efforts of concerned legislators, doctors, and even the American Medical Association. By 1910, nearly every state had anti-abortion laws, although enforcement of the laws varied greatly. Now, it's true that some of the early feminist movement played a role in the debate, but not all, as you might guess. Many of the early feminists of that era were opposed to abortion, like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. Uh, Some of the feminists, which were called socialists, gained more influence, and abortion law started to be liberalized to some degree in the 1930s. But it was the cultural sea change of the 1960s resulting from a combination of the anti-establishment movement, hallucinogenic drugs, the neo-feminist movement, and primarily the sexual evolution kind of initiated in Lawrence, Kansas, which gave rise to states loosening restrictions in their laws. In 1967, Colorado became the first state to decriminalize a doctor performing an abortion in cases of rape, incest, and in which uh, pregnancy would lead to permanent physical disability of a woman. By today's standard, that's pretty restrictive. At the same time, California was wrestling with this this issue and the uh, bipartisan majority uh, of uh, their legislature sponsored a bill called the Therapeutic Abortion Act. Now, some of you remember Ronald Reagan as a pro-life champion, but while he was governor of California in the late 60s, Ronald Reagan signed a law which decriminalized abortions when uh, necessary to protect the health of the mother. And the expectation of that time was that There would be abortion, would not become more numerous, and it would be safer in hospitals. In 1968, the full year under that new law, there were 5,000 abortions in California. But the numbers grew exponentially and stabilized at about 100,000 annually by the 1970s. It was literally abortion on demand, as 99% of the California women who applied for abortion were granted one. Some point at some point of this experience, uh, some point to this experience, as a key factor in the sudden emergence of the neo-feminist movement that introduced a very new idea—that women have a basic right to control their bodies and could choose to have an abortion or not. It only took about a year for Ronald Reagan to realize his huge mistake, and he eventually became the first openly and actively pro-life president we've ever had. The same was true of our own Sam Brownback, who, when he was first elected to the United States House of Representatives, had no position on abortion. But Kansans and others in in Congress were patient with Sam, and he became an openly pro-life senator and governor. And so Reagan and Brownback are examples of people who can change and develop a strong conviction if you appeal to them with reasons. Now, to understand the pendulum that we've experienced in Kansas, one has to go all the way back to Charles Darwin. Uh, By the early 1900s, his theory of evolution, uh, or the survival of the fittest, had caught on and spawned a new movement called eugenics, which advocated for the survival of the fittest, fittest, not by natural means, but by selective breeding of people. Followers sought to weed out what they called deficiencies within the human race, which included the weak, the infirm, and certain ethnicities through birth control and sterilization. The eugenics movement caught on in Kansas uh, and resulted in the formation of a Topeka chapter of the American Eugenic Society, which sponsored competitions at the Kansas State Fair to judge families on physical characteristics just like livestock. You can't make this up. More broadly, Darwinian philosophy was adopted by Karl Marx as, quote, the basis in natural science for the historical class struggle, known today as critical theory. Later, Hitler declared that he had studied the laws of several American states for the sterilization of people whose breeding was, quote, injurious to the racial stock. Uh, Eugenics went beyond philosophical to real consequences. Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, believed that eugenics was vital for what she called racial purification. Sanger called immigrants, blacks, the disabled, and the poor, quote, human weeds, reckless breeders, spawning human beings who should never have been born. Her avowed purpose in promoting birth control was to, quote, create a race of thoroughbreds. She also created what was called the Negro Project, designed to sterilize unknowing black women and others she deemed as undesirable for societies. Her grandson, Alexander Sanger, made a Darwinian defense of abortion in 2004, uh, four, asserting, quote, abortion is good, we must become proud that we have taken control of our reproduction. This has been a major factor in advancing human evolution and survival. So the facts are these. Planned Parenthood, up to now, has been the largest abortion provider in America. Almost 80% of their clinics are in minority communities. Americans whose skin color happens to be black make up between 12 and 13% of our population, but 35 to 40%, three times that, in in the rate of abortions. The result is a reduction of one-third of that ethnicity in the past 45 years. If the Ku Klux Klan had accomplished that same result, it would have been rightly called genocide. The main point I'm trying to make here is that the culture of death has its root in a man-as-God philosophy of hatred, which only recognizes the value of life for certain folks. Pure discrimination, and what many people call today racism. Kansas was an early pioneer in abortion. The Kansas legislature enacted laws allowing abortion for rape, incest, and fetal defects in 1969, four years before Roe v. Wade. And just a few years later multiple organizations lobbied to remove even those restrictions to open up Kansas to elective abortion for any reason and by 1974 the rate of abortion in Kansas was 3 times that of Nebraska 7 times that of Missouri and 25 times that in Oklahoma Kansas had become a destination for abortion minded women from surrounding states Soon thereafter the pro life movement was birthed And it took a while to turn the ocean liner around, but starting in 1997, the Kansas legislature passed a requirement—a modest uh, requirement—to have a 24-hour waiting period between the time that the woman is given legally, legally required information about the abortion. They later passed a ban on abortions after 22 weeks, based upon the fact of fetal pain at that point in development. Uh, Another law. Uh, requiring detailed abortion-specific information and uh, before consent could be given, requirement that abortion providers warn uh, patients of the link between abortion and breast cancer, and then a statement that life begins at conception, and uh, outlaw and also outlawing abortion based upon gender. All those things became Kansas law through the, through the efforts of the pro-life movement. But in 2015, Kansas became the first state to ban the procedure called. Dilation and evacuation, more commonly described as live dismemberment, which it is. Four years later, the Kansas Supreme Court found that that law could not be prohibited, that that law could not be upheld, and they found a right to abortion inherent in the state's Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And with the failure of Value Them Both on Tuesday, despite the recent Supreme Court decision striking down Roe v. Wade, Abortion is an absolute right in Kansas until there is a change in the state constitution. May not be much solace, but I understand that the state of Tennessee went through this process three times before they were able to amend their constitution and remove the right to abortion found by their Supreme Court. As a result of the vote on Tuesday, the abortion research entity called the Guttmacher Institute estimates that abortion in Kansas will increase up to 1,000% due to the restrictions in neighboring states. Now, a threshold question in Roe v. Wade was, is the preborn child deserving of protection as a human being? The majority opinion actually recognized that question and conceded it was crucial to whether abortion should be legal or not. And at the time, science couldn't answer that question, so the justices simply sidestepped that thorny issue. But some 20 years later, science came up with the answer. Enter Dr. Jerome Lejeune, a a French scientist who was known as the father of genetics. I I first became aware of Lejeune when an attorney friend of mine was representing a young lady who who was charged with trespassing uh, while protesting at an abortion clinic. And attorney Steve Graber argued the necessity defense for his client, which recognizes that trespassing was allowed when required to save life. To make his defense work, Steve had to establish that his client was attempting to save life. So he called Dr. Lejeune as a witness to successfully establish that element of his defense. It was Steve's bold and courageous attempt to confront the courts with Dr. Lejeune's scientific proof of the beginning of life. However, the Supreme Court refused to take the case. Now, what did Dr. Lejeune discover? A short video we're gonna show here tells you several things about not only Roe v. Wade, but Lejeune's scientific discovery.
1: Is the embryo a human being, or is it something more primitive that has the potential to become a human being sometime in the future? This has to be the single most important question that demands an answer in the abortion debate. Even Supreme Court Justice Harry Blackmun, who wrote the 1973 Roe vs. Wade decision legalizing abortion in the United States, acknowledged this when he said, If this suggestion of personhood is established, the appellant's case, of course, collapses, for the fetus's right to life would then be guaranteed specifically by the amendment, meaning, of course, the 14th Amendment. Unfortunately, Blackman famously sidestepped the entire issue when he said, we need not resolve the difficult question of when life begins. When those trained in the respective disciplines of medicine, philosophy, and theology are unable to arrive at any consensus, The judiciary, at this point in the development of man's knowledge, is not in a position to speculate as to the answer. In other words, he was saying important people don't seem to be able to agree, and we're just judges, so we don't really need to answer the question about whether the unborn are full human beings with moral worth deserving of legal protection. We'll just make abortion legal. And if anybody ever finds out in the future that there really is a human being in there, well, then they'll have to overturn our flawed decision. Not only was this an appallingly dangerous legal precedent, it completely ignored compelling philosophical and biological evidence that human life does indeed begin at sperm egg fusion, otherwise known as conception or fertilization. Let's break this down. There's an important principle in logic that helps to objectively establish what is real and what is not real in the world. It's about 2,400 years old and is sometimes called the principle of objective evidence, or the principle of publicly verifiable evidence. It holds that if a theory or an explanation or a definition is to be considered valid, it ought to have evidence that other people of reasonable intelligence can verify. Sounds rational, right? I mean, if I were to just arbitrarily assert something without giving any publicly verifiable evidence, you would be logically free to arbitrarily deny it. For example, if I said, it's a baby, and you asked, well, how do you know? And I said, I just feel it deep in my heart. Well, the depths of my heart are not really publicly verifiable. And even if they were, my personal feelings are subjective and have nothing to do with the reality of what's being observed. But there is objective, publicly verifiable evidence that we can make use of in the abortion debate. You may have heard of the famous French geneticist by the name of Dr. Jerome Lejeune, who discovered that an extra copy of chromosome 21 was responsible for the condition known as Down syndrome. In the 1990s, Dr. Lejeune provided objective evidence that the full human genetic code is present in the human embryo from the moment of sperm egg fusion and not just a human genetic code, but a distinct, individual, unique, and unrepeatable human genetic code. It is biologically and genetically completely distinct from its mother and its father. As Dr. Lejeune wrote, to accept the fact that after fertilization has taken place, a new human has come into being, is no longer a matter of taste or of opinion. The human nature of the human being from conception to old age is not a metaphysical contention. It is plain experimental evidence. What's more, the human embryo at the moment of sperm egg fusion contains all of the information necessary to direct its own development in the way that human beings develop. This would be impossible if that embryo was not a complete, organized, whole human being. All of the best scientific and medical research confirms that the appellant's case has indeed collapsed and exposes Roe v. Wade to be one of the greatest travesties in modern legal history.
0: Well, there's at least three points to gather from that video. First, that the Roe v. Wade decision uh, said the court didn't need to address the question of when life begins. Then it promptly decided when life begins. Not until after that thing, whatever it is, exits the womb. At conception, DNA forms a self-integrating and entirely new human being. That means that the embryo has the same nature. In other words, it is the same kind of entity as its mother and father. The only difference is not in kind, but only in the degree of maturation. Between any of the stages from embryo to fetus to infant and on to death. At the same time, the embryo has a wholly distinct, individual, unique, and unrepeatable human genetic code. Therefore, by the very words of Roe v. Wade itself, the case for abortion collapsed by the objective evidence that all that's necessary for life comes together at conception. It is a full human being at that point. Now, I think on your handout, I've listed some resources for you to look at. These are uh, the ones from the Journal of Medical Ethics and the History of Medicine, are fairly technical, uh, kind of over my head. I would encourage you to read, if you can, the, the, the third one from the Evolution News and Science Today. If the fetus isn't a human being, what is it? These are actually intelligent design folks trying to reach scientists and other atheists. Uh, And that, and and you can understand it, okay? We all can. And it completely destroys any argument that this is not life from conception. But with that scientific reality, abortion proponents are forced to argue that human life is more than our genetic makeup, the DNA received at conception. Rather, they say, it requires stuff like consciousness and intelligence and personality. Well, think about that. When one loses those faculties because of injury or disease or perhaps is born without any of them, what do we call that being? Do we discard them as non-human? No, we lovingly treat them with care and concern for a very specific reason we're going to get into in a minute. Some studies have shown that the child in the womb experiences ex- experiences human characteristics at various points in gestation. There's reaction to light, therefore sight. There's reaction to noise, therefore hearing. There's smiling. There's pain. He or she even urinates in the, room, in the womb. I didn't know that. And if it looks like and acts like a human, how do we get to the conclusion that it's not human? Now, I want to suggest that people, even most non-Christians, without knowing why, Know intuitively and feel deep within that there is something special, something even sacred about people, but why? Well, let's talk about how you might help somebody understand why with a conversation on this issue. And you, of course, want to avoid the conversation becoming more heat than light, so I'm just going to make some suggestions here. You know, to be cautious here, there are many factors to take into account when you're going to discuss anything controversial. So, you may want to first develop a relationship with the abortion advocate before helping that person understand the truth. Secondly, be patient with young people who have been told repeatedly all their lives that women have a basic right to determine what happens to their bodies, never mind the male or female that's within them. Finally, be cautious. If you get into such a discussion on this issue, the person to whom you're speaking may have had an abortion. Always speak the truth in love. And, of course, there are some who are hard and strident in their views, and for those it may be wise, as Jesus said, to not cast your pearls before swine. When I was lobbying uh, for pro-life legislation in the late 1980s, uh, somebody sent me a large envelope filled with pictures taken at an industrial incinerator where clinics sent their fetal tissue for disposal. The effect on me was impactful. But that reaction to those graphic pictures was based upon my emotion. It was effective. But let me ask, does it miss the underlying reason that this is wrong? Is the practice wrong simply because at some point in development, it becomes clearly barbaric? So in an appropriate situation, when you think you've got, you can have a civil and reasoned conversation. One way to start a Godward discussion about the sanctity of life, even to an unbeliever, is to ask questions and allow the other person to think and respond. So you might start with, say, you know, one of the big questions of life is, from where did we come? What's our origin? Okay? And, of course, the stock answer is, well, evolution, of course. And you can point out, well, you know, macroevolution is just a theoretical process, not an explanation of origin, where we came from. And you could go on and say, how could all life, with all of our feelings, our emotions, our intelligence, information, not to mention the rest of the material universe, come into existence from nothing without any cause? So show them the dignity of listening to the response and see where it takes the conversation. You might be able to establish that there's some other cause. Another question, why do you think it's wrong to take innocent human life? And of course they say, what do you mean? Of course murder's wrong. And you say, no, no, here's what I'm talking about. I mean, why do you think it's wrong to murder a person, yet you eat hamburger from an animal. What's the difference in your mind? And of course, one response is likely is, well, we all agree it's wrong. To this, you, you might say, well, not everybody. Uh, remember the Nazis, communist governments, terrorists, whole kingdoms and cultures have rejected the value of certain human life. Have you ever heard of human sacrifice? If the wrongness of murder is determined by mankind, either by the collective views of the culture or by those in power, who are we to say that it's wrong if somebody else disagrees? In fact, how can you say anything is wrong in another culture, whether it's rape or racial discrimination or any act of injustice, if it's all up to us to determine right and wrong for ourselves? Isn't that just the very essence of anarchy? Every person doing what's right in their own eyes. Now, let's pause for some logic here. Certain propositions are subject to a basic law of logic called the excluded middle, which says that it's either A or B, like we did this before, I'm either a man or I'm not. Liquid H2O is either wet or it's not. Uh, And so the question here is, who determines truth, right and wrong? The choices are either mankind, which would include the culture and those in power, or an authority above man that you and I call God. So the middle is excluded, there is no other possibility. So if the person with whom you're talking is willing to think and eventually the light goes on, You can get to your assertion. I believe it's wrong to murder, to take innocent life, because God created us in His image. And for that reason only, biblical Christianity values all human life, regardless of status, of ethnicity, of location, or stage of development. What do you think? Again, allow them to consider and respond. A person might ask, well, how do you know that mankind is created in God's image? And at that point, you go to the Word. Genesis 1, where God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over all creation. So man created, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created male and female. In chapter 5, it says, When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Jeremiah 1 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. And we all know Psalm 139 it says, your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them, none of those days. So in a biblical and pretty real sense, life doesn't begin at conception, rather it begins in eternity past, when God made a plan for you and me. You can then go to Genesis 9, where God is blessing Noah right after the flood, and he says to Noah, giving him instructions, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Now, why? We thought two wrongs don't make a right. Why should you take the the life of one person just because they took the life of another person? Well, the passage tells you why. For God made man in his image. That's it. That's the only reason that you and I have any value over animals, and the only reason it's wrong to murder. It is only because all people are created in his own image. You cannot justify our privileged status as humans on any other basis. An abortion simply denies the image of God in preborn children. In our private conversations establishing this foundation, the need for a reason to value human life above other life is really essential. That's a part of the building blocks of this whole thing. If It clearly cannot be personal preference. One is left with the logical conclusion that it must be something beyond mankind. The image of God is what makes us human. Mankind could not lose the image without ceasing to be what he is. Moreover, it's only because we keep that image of God, even in a broken and distorted state, that man is redeemable, worth redeeming. Without it, why would God have any reason to send his son to die on our behalf? Wayne Gruden wrote this, Knowing that we are made in God's image affects not only our understanding of our Creator and our relationship with Him, It also sets the stage for understanding and defending the sanctity of all human life. Every single human being, no matter how much the image of God is marred by sin, illness, weakness, age, or disability, still has the status of being in God's image and therefore must be treated with the dignity and respect that is due to God's image bearer. This has a profound implication for our conduct toward others. It means that People of every race deserve equal dignity and rights. It means that elderly people and children yet born deserve full protection and honor as human beings. If one seriously considers uh, the historical and logical and scientific and most importantly the biblical reasons to believe that the fruit of the womb is human life, the question for us then becomes... Where do we go from here? Because right now, we in the state of Kansas are living in a place where the most dangerous location for a child is the womb, period. Now law, well whether by the people or by the courts, has a different effect on different people. For those who approve the new law, it often causes them to rest in their victories and grow apathetic, thinking the law takes care of everything. For those in the middle, without any strong feelings, it tends to normalize whatever the law supports, and they accept it without objection, without really thinking. For those opposed, though, it causes them to fight even harder. Nothing I say today should discourage anyone from working to protect the most vulnerable and oppressed among us. The, the preborn. Still, our mission as biblical Christians—should we ex- choose to accept it—as followers of Christ—is to glorify Him and be salt and light as His witness to a lost world. And we must be faithful to that witness, to that mission. But we must also determine, in in every different situation that we're faced with, how can we be most effective. So, I'm suggesting today that instead of simply declaring life begins at conception, uh, cursing the darkness, and going back to sleep, we must all be about the business of creating or contributing to a culture of life, a culture that affirms and protects the image of God. Now, we've covered all these different reasons, most importantly, the biblical ones, for that culture. And it's important for you and your children to understand and to be able to explain that basis. If we cannot explain why we believe life is sacred, why should they listen to us rant on about the right to life? Usually, to gain a hearing with people who do not understand or perhaps disagree with a biblical view, it requires more than just talking intelligently. It's a true maxim that people often do not care what you know until they know that you care about them and more than just the preborn, uh, to avoid what in their mind is hypocrisy. So Let's take a brief look at some of the ways in which all of us can contribute to a culture of life. Uh, I'll address some basics in that process and then we'll have some other instruction. You know, children, they're born completely self-centered and some of them never lose that state of mind. They keep us up throughout the night as infants, and they keep us up as teenagers. They get in the way of our careers, our ambitions. They make a mess of our bodies, our homes, and our lives. They complicate life and take up our time and our energy. Parenting is hard, unrewarding, even heartbreaking work. Right? Well, that's one perspective, one way to look at children. The whole culture of death for the pre-born arises out of this fear of life and coveting a life focused on self free from the inconveniences that we call kids. Well, what is God's attitude towards kids? Psalm 127 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. So one very basic step that many Christians can and should take is to get over, even repent, of that very real fear of life. Uh, scripture repeatedly states that God open and closes the womb. If he opens it at all, and for some he doesn't, It is only for a season, for a window of time. So, young people, young couples, can you trust God to show you that window He has for you? Bearing children is not a right, it is a gift. One of the criticisms of pro-lifers that I've heard perhaps you have is that they only care about children before they're born, not after when they're abused or live in poverty. Yes, the pre-born is the focus of the pro-life movement. Why? Well, think about it. If you wanted to go on vacation to a Caribbean island, uh, but the travel agent warned you that one out of every five people who visit that island are murdered, would you go? Is there any class of people that is more defenseless, more vulnerable, more threatened, or more oppressed? Abraham Lincoln once had his personal character attacked by a man who knew him well. And when he was confronted with that accusation by a reporter, he said, if that man that I know said that, there must be some truth to that. So let's consider this talking point point, and in some sense there may be some truth there about our attention to the poor, to kids, to the oppressed, and use it as our motivation for the purposes of protecting the image of God and many other. Even though Christians really do care about people after death, could we do more to minister with the love of Christ, particularly to those who are currently being oppressed? You know, we hear a lot today about slavery. Slavery is a sin uh, for all time, we've always had it, and including in this country, however, what about today? Uh, many have said that there has never been, ne- never been more people in some form of slavery, illegal or illegal, than today. It's just hard to imagine that women and children are being sold as goods for the use of others. In 2026, Kansas City will be the site of the World Cup in soccer. That's going to be a great economic boon for that area. However, if Kansas City does not prepare, much of that economic activity will involve the sale of people for pleasure during the course of the World Cup. They are known for that. Women and even children will be shipped in from all over the world just for that big event. Closer to home, the Topeka area is a crossroads for trafficking. Thankfully, our local law enforcement has taken it seriously and formed a task force of agencies to coordinate efforts against that evil. There has actually been some success, even though it's very, very difficult to prosecute those cases. What can we do? Just a few weeks ago, a representative from Project to Restore was here to explain their new ministry and open up that opportunity, perhaps for you to serve in. Larry mentioned a few weeks ago that perhaps you should consider foster care and or adoption. And uh, uh, for your information, there are active efforts right now to get more foster kids either back to their families through mentoring or into adoptive families more quickly in Kansas. Maybe you could help out with that as if the new administration recognizes the need for faith-based organizations like the church. Lion and Lamb supports the Topeka Rescue Mission. Uh, perhaps you can work on, on site with the homeless and the, perhaps the disabled and the elderly. The needs and the opportunity are endless. These are just a few of the ways in which we can foster a culture of life. There are more opportunities that are gonna be presented in just a few minutes. You know? I mentioned earlier that laws are a necessary part of society, however, they are the least effective way to change the hearts of people. Better than law is civil discourse uh, where we can reason with one another and think, as we've discussed today, and maybe ask those questions. Whenever you have the opportunity, you should be bold to speak the truth, always in love. We want to be faithful, but we also want to be effective. But the best and most effective way to change hearts and the culture is from the inside out. That is, through the good news of Jesus Christ. If you can get another to see their sin, what they really deserve, and their need for a merciful and a sacrificial savior to satisfy true justice with true grace and love, the behavior will eventually take care of itself and each new Christian can contribute to the culture of life. I want to now direct you to folks in our midst who have already contributed to a culture of life. And I'm gonna miss some, I know, but some of you may recall that Derek and Stephanie Sharp for years fostered young men into adulthood. Larry and Trish Stewart cook, took care of babies for their moms who were serving in prison. Steven Jelenic is actively ministering to the homeless right now. Julie McElroy has helped women find hope through her work at the rescue mission. Dan and Julie have opened their home to many in need. Susan Beard is serving for project to restore for victims of human trafficking. Her husband, Brian, is providing medical uh, oversight for the sonogram services provided at Lifeline Children's Services by Joan and Pam's daughter, Mary Ann Curry, to help young moms actually see the life within them so that they might choose life. I mention these, not to detract from their rewards in heaven but to give you examples and resources who may be able to share their experiences so that you might be able to find a way to contribute to the culture of life. So, would you like a fresh face? Probably would, okay? Um, I'm gonna ask uh, Nathan Bruns to come up now. Nathan is a pastor and he serves as the State Director for Lifeline Children's Services, located at 21st and McAllister. He and his wife, Julia, have several children including some adopted. Nathan and Julia, therefore, are active contributors to the culture of life.
2: Good morning, guys. Thanks for allowing us to be here today. Kent kind of teed it up, and my job is to bring it home, is the way I look at it. Uh, Today, I want to start by just sharing with you, uh, real briefly, a passage of Scripture or a, an account in Jesus' gospel that I believe kind of gives a little bit of understanding to the question we, re- we receive at the pregnancy center, but also with Lifeline Children's Services as a whole. And it's a question that doesn't necessarily always come from the Christian brothers and sisters, but it also, but I can't say it does not come from the church. That they'll say and ask the question, so, like, what do we do? <laughs> we, we have the information. We know the truth. We even believe and what Scripture teaches is mago day that God, we are all created in the image of God. But what do I what do I do with that tangibly? What I'd look this will not be on the screen, but I direct you to John chapter six. It's one of the uh, accounts in the Gospels that are in all four Gospels. It's when Jesus takes the loaves and feeds the five thousand. And what I love about this account is is that if you remember that they, Jesus just came across the sea and he's there with his disciples and they've just had a lot of ministry. And they're looking to have a deep breath. And all of a sudden, these people follow him and they follow the disciples. And the disciples said in, in no such words, Jesus, can we just send them home? Like, I mean, they're hungry, I know. But if we get them gone, like they leave early enough, they'll make it home in time. And Jesus says, no, we're going to feed them. And the disciples start saying things of like, well, how are we going to do this? I mean, there's literally thousands. And it would it would take so much money to feed these folks. And, and in John chapter six, uh, Verse, verse, uh, uh, verse eight. Uh, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, says this. He spoke up. Well, here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will that go among so many? And I don't know the, the heart behind Andrew's or the sharing of that. But I read it more from a perspective of, well, <laughs> well, we could give this a shot. Like um, I'm a little bit sarcastic. sarcastic. Raise your hand if you have a little sarcasm brewing in you. And Jesus takes that perceived, sarc- Nate's perceived sarcasm, and says, We'll give that a go. And today I want to encourage you, whether you're discouraged by the political landscape or discouraged by the voting of folks, or whether you're discouraged or just overwhelmed of not knowing what to do, I want to remind you that what moves us in our ministry at Lifeline is knowing and believing in Scripture that God is looking to do a miracle all the time inside the people who are willing to listen and willing to see. I've always envisioned that young man being someone with a He-Man lunchbox because I had a He-Man lunchbox as a kid and just opens it up and things clamber and Jesus takes it. And we know the end of the story is they pass it with baskets around and as, as all the people ate, they hand it back and there was more than they started with. And today I want to give you a few opportunities of ways to connect the ways that you maybe can serve and bring, if you will, your small portion of, of bread, the small portion of fish but know that God will use that if it is with the right heart and the right intention to see his kingdom see His kingdom grow. And with great intention to see those who do not have a voice, the unborn, or those who are born and they are look, do not have a place to live and need a gospel-centered fam- family to take them in and to demonstrate Jesus to them. Here's some tools for you. Today is the first slide up there and these slides are, are not the best. I, I got a new computer and I don't think I'm that old. But I found out I'm not technologically savvy with the new computer that was entrusted to me. And so this information will be out in the entryway today too. Lifeline as a whole, we are in 16 states. And so our office here in Kansas serves Kansas and Missouri, but we're in 16 states and our central office is in Birmingham, Alabama. And through some hard work of staff over the last year, we just launched in July called the Lifeline Educational Portal. And as Kent kind of said, I believe as followers of Christ, we have a responsibility to be informed. The Word of God tells us that the Word of God itself is sharper than a double-edged sword. And many times I'm thinking, that's great. I want God to dice and slice up things that need to be changed. But I'm also reminded that dicing and slicing needs to happen from the inside out, right? For my humility to be to be at the forefront. And so this, it's called LEP. It's a great marketing thing. If you have a better name for it, we love it. It's just called Lifeline Educational Portal. If you have a, I don't know if your church is connected with um, some online um, biblical resources but with this what these are, are free resources online that you can sit at your computer or your phone and learn about different things that are happening and how you can respond and have conversation with those who maybe you're not just not against the biblical view of life but they maybe are uninformed also for some of you that are maybe thinking about being a foster parent or you're a foster parent already since we're a licensed child placing agency you can get your continuing education credits right online from about 90 percent free there's a few classes on there that are for pay, just for legality's sake, but there are also is Bible study, small group materials that are free to the local church to be better equipped to serve the vulnerable and to be inf- informed of how it is we can step into that space. The other two I want to remind you of, or, or maybe bring your attention for the first time on the next slide is this, is that we, we have a large education and counseling department um, with Lifeline nationally. And so through covid i don't know if we realize if you've known but if you're a foster family or foster parent there are children who did not have resources in their schools that they were needing when they were at home it was difficult for those resources to be given to them specifically in the in the regards to psychological or educational services and so if you go to the lifelinechild.org you'll see that there are educational services and a new service called family coaching or parent coaching what that means is that if you are an adoptive family that you man, you, you just need a little extra boost with your child, a little extra, extra boost in education, online they can do or in person we can set up to help serve those families who are already serving in that space. As Ken said, sometimes we, if we support life the way God supports life, we can be pigeonholed or in, maybe in some rights we pigeonhole ourselves saying we are about the unborn and rightly so. But for those of you who stepped into the space of foster and adoption, know this is that you're doing the work, you're doing the work also of, of Scripture, you're doing gospel work. And we want to provide resources in that, in that, in those lanes to make sure that the children and those in your care get to know Jesus long term. And last but not least, here in Kansas, and here in Topeka, we have Lifeline Pregnancy Center. Lifeline nationally does not operate another pregnancy center except here in Topeka. You can take that home and maybe celebrate that in some way. We've worked with pregnancy centers for over 40 years in crisis pregnancy as they would refer moms that would come into centers all around the country and our pregnancy counselors would meet with them and talk to them about their options and what it meant to choose life in the attempt to hope we'd have an opportunity to pray with them, the ladies have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. But here, Lifeline Pregnancy Center was able to take on a ministry that's longstanding called Crisis Pregnancy Options, CPO, for a number of years. And just over the last 18 months, two years, I lose track of time because life is moving quickly. We've been able to trans- move and shake and change, and God's blessed to adapt to a medical pregnancy resource center, which means there's women who walk into the center on a weekly basis or make an appointment. They come have a sonogram to have a pregnancy test. For some just to come in and have conversation because they said, I'm pregnant, I do not know what to do. I want to dispel a myth a little bit here real fast, is that the demographic of those that walked through the door of the pregnancy center last year was young women who were 14, all the way to the oldest client that was 64. There are young women who come in that do not have a place to live or they're on the brink of the brink of homelessness. Other young women that come in that don't know what to do, they're pregnant. They need help because they're supposed to start law school in the fall. I will let you know that I don't share that as hey that as a doomsday, doomsday prepper that unexpected pregnancy can hit with anyone, but more so that life that God has intended for us to have, to, for man to produce, Adam and Eve and us, well, it, it, it's for everyone. <laughs> it's for everyone. And so therefore with the pregnancy center, I want to let you know there's opportunity for you to do parent mentoring to come and meet with the mom and a dad that choose life. Understand the pregnancy center is not just for those who have unexpected pregnancy. We have services for them, but also it's for those who have chosen to parent. And can I tell you from a pastor perspective, one of the things I've been challenged on is is man, I really have taught and encouraged our church to promote life and have people, moms that are pregnant choose life. But you know what we need also is we need seasoned folks like some of us who've been parents for a while that have stumbled through it and by the grace of God have been, our kids are still alive. Amen, right? (laughs) We need those folks to step into space with other moms and dads and say, you can do it. You can do it. And we're going to walk with you. The local church will walk alongside you. We'll have a cup of coffee, maybe have dinner. And guess what? I'll tell you how I failed. But by the grace of God and by Jesus Christ, that is how and the power by which I live. So today, church, I give you that encouragement is that you maybe feel like you have a few small loaves or maybe less breadcrumbs. But I believe the God of scripture, the God of heaven, the sovereign God can use our breadcrumbs that he has entrusted us with. To help those help those know that he is alive and well, he's looking to a miracle in everyone's life the greatest miracle he's done in my life has saved me from my sin. Mm. I pray and hope that in that we can see that the life God has given us, the life that God has given us, is a life to share with others who just need to know that he is alive and well. I think for allowing us to come today, I'll be in the intro at the table out there and love to answer any questions if we can. But I think for allowing us to share today.
0: Yeah, I've had the privilege to work with Nate and the folks at Lifeline for a few years now, and I can say they're honestly living out the scripture that says to love justice, show mercy, and walk humbly uh, in the quest to to create a culture of life. Um, If you would, uh, as the worship team comes up, would you stand? And uh, we've got uh, a passage here. Now, the context of this passage in Matthew 25 is that Jesus is talking about separating the sheep from the goats. Okay? We're supposed to be the sheep. All right? This is one of the characteristics of being a sheep. And when we're done with this, uh, after the worship time, go out and talk to Nate in the, in the foyer and see what you might be able to do. Let's, let's recite together. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me.